All right, well, good morning uh, to Sunday School. Right now, we're stuck on this side, so if you don't want to be that far away from me, you're going to have to move. I'm not moving, um, but you can see the slides. I'm not using the whiteboard today, so that'll work. Please give us feedback on the slides if there's any way we can make the font or whatever presentation easier. We are going to start using slides as well during the worship service for songs at least. So this will be new, um, and we'll figure it out. So just let us know. That does remind me a bit of an appeal. We are we're growing from two to three and about to go back to one sound guy this summer. That's not sustainable. In addition, if we start doing slides, we really probably need two people back there. So please consider uh, if you or someone in your family um, can do that. You can sign up for the weeks that you're available and that work for you. Uh, it's not that hard, but it does take some training. So please, we need, we need to start taking care of that in the next couple months. So please consider that. For those of you who are at home, uh, you may or may not be able to see the slides uh, through the video. You should see the handout embedded there in the Facebook video. So you can open that, and I will, the slides cover nothing that's not, that's double negative. The, everything in the slides is in the handout, and the handout has even more. Handouts are coming for those here who want them, but you can choose one or the other. You should be fine without a handout. So we are returning to the Westminster Confession. It's a it's our church document of how we interpret scripture as a broad um, theme of teaching. Uh, we have, it's been over two years, I think, since we methodically went through chapter by chapter. It's something we try to go through every few years here at our church just so we know that what we believe. Uh, although the last two weeks that um, Dan covered for me while I had COVID, that he, when you go through the shorter catechism, that's a question and answer way of trying to get to know the confession. So those all go hand in hand. So we're on the last four chapters now of the confession for our next four weeks of Sunday school. And then we have a topical study at the end of February. And then I don't remember what we're doing after that. I think uh, Emmanuel's teaching us something for a little bit. So let's go ahead, uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this these 45 minutes we have to study your word, um, to consider these deep things uh, that you have presented to us. Pray that we, it wouldn't just be some PhD theology we're trying to get, that we're, we're actually trying to get to know Jesus. And we're trying to get to know how to honor you and honor him properly as a body of believers. Be with us in this sensitive topic of church discipline. Pray that it would be a real benefit to us as a body of believers who you have called out of this world to be a holy people. We pray that we'd be faithful in that charge. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the chapter 30 in the confession, the original is called Church Censors. So if you have that copy, then just think of the word discipline. And this is what I want to go through today. Basically, what do, what do we believe? What does the confession teach? And then I'll go to an example text, and then we'll have some Q&A. A lot of times I teach, I'd rather just start with the Bible and just exegete it. But again, the, it kind of slows you down. So in our sermons, we are typically going exegetically just line by line through, through verses and then eventually chapters and, and books, right? We're, we're trying to pull out truths. Well, eventually you have all these passages, you've pulled out truths, and now you kind of need to gather your arms around them and, and know how to understand them in whole, how to talk about them in whole. So at some point, you, you systematize your theology, and, and that's what the confession says, systematic. So we're going to start with that top down, 
understanding and that people have done this for generations and centuries at this point, ha have collated these truths, and we're going to start dissecting those truths and going back down. And of course, if you're ever reading a passage and think it disagrees with the confession, then study, study carefully, right? Don't, don't switch your view carefully, because this, this has been, or carelessly, I should say. But in the end, if you think the Bible and the confession disagree, you're to follow the Bible, right? And that's okay. And you're not, you're not held to every jot and tittle of the confession to be a member of this church. Um, you need to be a believer, right? There's five questions you need to be, be able to answer. Um, and so, but it, just so you know, this is what we teach. Every Bible study, every Sunday school should be in line with the confession. All right, so there are four uh, parts to this, um, to this chapter. And the whole text is there in your handouts. We won't go over it all. So we have a church-state distinction. Within that church distinction, we have officers that are appointed for certain duties. And then we want to talk about specifically and mostly today on that section three, the purpose of discipline. And then there's types of discipline. And so the first paragraph there is quite straightforward. The Lord Jesus is king and head of his church, has appointed a government in it to be administered by church officers, distinct from the civil authorities. So we're not going to go into this. You can go to other chapters of the confession. Lots of passages talk about what role the church has, what role the state has, what role the family has, what role employers have. All of that is another topic, but obviously impinges upon what we're going to talk about today. We as a, we as a church believe in a, what's called a plurality of elders, and so our church is ruled by multiple men who are, who are gifted in certain ways and then are given authority to rule. That's how our church sees church government. Okay, the second paragraph, because that's how we see uh, church government happening, these officers have authority to retain and to remit sins, to shut the kingdom against the unrepentant, and to open it to repentant sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by releasing from censors. Right, so they have, they, they're given authority that has to do with sin. They're looking for repentance, and there, there's, there's a way to, to close that kingdom, to close that fellowship, and to welcome it back, to close and to open. Let's look at some verses that would support that. Matthew 18, that's not the example passage I'm going to go through in detail today, but that's probably the other major passage to, to work through in this idea. So in that passage, if you recall, a brother offends you, and so you want to talk to him. You want to show them their offense, show them their sin, if he won't listen to you, then you bring two or three others with you. If he won't listen to them, now you take it to the church. That's what verse 17 says. If this brother who has offended and continues to not repent refuses to listen, then you tell it to the church. Now, who is the church, right? And that's where it goes back to whatever your system of government is, that's the church. Some people will say that's going to be the whole congregation. Some people will say it's, it's a single pastor. We believe it's a plurality of elders. Fine, again, not the topic today, but every church, no matter where they stand, must be ready and able to receive someone coming to them with, with a concern for a fellow brother, right? Somehow your system of government has to support that. And so the first thing we, we can just see, and more important than the specific topic, is that there is something called the church that's visible, that's identifiable, that you can touch. You could have a list. You know who's in your church. 
I know we, we, there's the words we usually use are universal and local. So universally, the congregation, the, pe- the people of God, we are not infallible to know, right? God knows who are his. They might not be in a congregation. There might be people sitting in this room who are not in that universal church. They don't actually believe in Jesus. They don't love Jesus, but they're identified with our local body. So there's a disconnect. But as far as possible, it's our intent when it comes to communicant church membership that we are trying to recognize true faith, true repentance, and we identify people. And, and then we now treat people as brother and sister. We know we don't have infallible hearts. We don't, we don't know truly what's in your hearts. But we treat you as a brother because of your declaration, because your life supports it. We treat you that way. Matthew 16, you're Peter on this rock. I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Again, there's a question among different denominations. Is, is Jesus just talking to his apostles? Is there an apostolic succession that comes from them to a few men? Or is this something perpetual in all local churches? We take this to be a perpetual authority in some way, and we, we think this authority resides then with the elders of the church. Again, it goes into a broader idea of the local church. John 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, it, there might be an individual context here as well, but at a church level, what exactly does that mean? I grew up in a church where I could go to my church leader who could absolve me of my sins. Are we saying that? Do we believe that our elders can absolve us of sins? No, we don't. But there's a sense of this, this identifiable, physical, local church the elders will make a declaration that treats them as if they are forgiven or not. They are trying to discern from fruit, from their confession, as best as they can, we see that you're a Christian. We see that you're not a Christian. So we're going to treat you in that way. And so it's not that they're actually forgiving sins and actually remitting sins, but it's that we, under, we are trying our best to discern if God has forgiven you, if you're in a state of grace, the proper use of that term. So, and obviously there's going to be denominations and different views of these things, but, but really when it comes to church discipline, that's what's going on. We aren't ever declaring that we know your heart, but we need to do the best we can to treat you in a certain way because we need to know how best to help you. Do you need discipleship or do you need evangelism? Like, what is your need? Am I going to sit there and and try to get to the nth degree of obedience? Or am I talking to a heathen who just needs the gospel, right? All right. So we've talked about church-state distinction, the role of officers. Let's talk about the purpose of discipline. And this is a meaty paragraph. Let's see. I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing at once and then... We'll go to two points per slide. Church discipline is necessary for reclaiming and gaining fellow Christians who are guilty of offenses, for, for deterring others from committing similar offenses, for purging the leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ in the holy profession of the gospel, and for aver- averting the wrath of God which might justly fall on the church if it should allow his covenant and its seals to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. All right, so each slide here, I'm just going to go through two points. I pulled out six points here that I think we could dissect. The first and most important is that the whole goal 
at every point, at every step, no matter how many days and weeks and years you're into this process of calling this person back, you're, you're calling them back to repentance. That's the goal. We, it's unfortunate that oftentimes we hear the word discipline or church discipline, we immediately think negative. We think excommunication, and, and I'm guilty of that as well. I was actually in a church once that refused to use the word discipline. They said discipling, right? It's the same word. So this whole process we could call church discipling. I'm trying to get you the gospel, get you seated the area of your way so that you repent. That is always, always, always the goal. And so if you're, if you're going to go to the brother that offends you because you're trying to start checking off the list, we need to get to the church. I need to do my stuff. If, if you're not agonizing over this, if the elders, if it finally comes to the church and the elders see this case and they're not agonizing over this issue, there's a problem. There's a problem with our hearts. We want this brother or sister to repent. We don't want to get it to excommunication. And of course, if it gets there, we're still going to go after them, as we'll see. Also, it's to deter other Christians from similar sins. When, when we see somebody undergoing some kind of discipline or ruining their life because of sin, that ought to be a warning sign to us. We ought to not get arrogant and think, oh, what a fool. We ought to, we ought to be praying to God that, that he would not let us fall into such temptation. We ought to be seeking accountability. We ought to be so thankful that we would have a brother or sister who would be willing to come to me, put his arm around me and say, brother, I'm concerned for you. I see something in the way you talk, the way you treat your wife. Um, I, I haven't seen you at church for a while. That ought to be something that we, we receive with such joy that, that it would be nipped in the bud. Don Knotts had his whole saying about that. Nip it in the bud. Like, before something flourishes and gets out of control, you've, you've got you've to clip it early. And we would want that. We ought to be, want to be found out in our sin early on. Because we know how our sin can just go worse and worse and worse. We start lying to cover it up, and it's just, it consumes us, and we find there's no way out. All right, sin is not just individual. We ought to know that about sin. It's communal. Sin affects clearly ourselves, our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with everyone around us, and it, it can spread. You might have a brother or sister who's uh, not very careful in a certain area, but it hasn't affected them, but they see you willing to sin, willing to push limits, and it emboldens them, and it, and it flourishes. It can flourish in a church. It can be very dangerous. It's like letting a fire go, right? If a fire starts in your trash can, if you say, ah, it's a trash can, looks contained, no big deal, that can spread. That's the nature of sin. That's the evil of sin. And we want to act in accordance with our holy profession. We claim to be a people who are called out of this world. We, we, the, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to act that way. If the church sees, if the world sees the church accepting sin, just being casual with sin, not being any different as they are in the world, there's nothing unique about the church. If, if they see from the outside that they just let things happen. I, I had a relative who was... I was all encouraged because she was going to church again. She hadn't been to church in years. I was so encouraged. But then I thought, wait a minute. She's living with her boyfriend. And she's going to this Bible study. And I don't know. Did they say anything? Was that, 
No big deal. Maybe they were being patient with her. They were assuming they were evangelizing. I don't know. But if she was identified as a member of that church, living with the boyfriend, and no one saying anything, that would, that would speak volumes to me, not only as a Christian, but if I'm in the world thinking, oh, no, no big deal to that church. Right? We need to participate as a congregation that would, would tell the world we are a special people. We belong to a God, and we believe in him, and we obey him. Fifth, we want to prevent God's wrath. Now, we are calling this brother or sister to repentance. Don't let your doctrine of perseverance of the saints ruin you on this. Do not assume your brother or sister is safe from the wrath of God. You don't know their hearts. You don't know. If they start acting or confessing in a way that is outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, you have got to do something. Your brother's soul is in danger. And the, and the whole church, in 1 Peter 4, it says, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of, of God. It's possible for a local church. It's possible for Spring Meadows to come under the judgment of God and to ruin our witness. It's possible as a congregation. We have to take this stuff very seriously. And lastly, discipline is reserved for, I don't know what else to call it, the big sins. We'll, we'll talk later in the Q&A about what that might be. But it, when, we, when we're talking about this formal church-level, elder-level discipline, it ought to be the exception, right? Really, when we talk about the topic of church discipline, most of it probably ought to never reach the church, right? If we're being faithful and going to our brother and, and dealing with sin and praying with them and helping them provide accountability for them, hopefully it never gets to the church. Hopefully if it gets to the church and the elders are deliberating over an issue, they're working with this person or this family, and by God's grace, repentance comes to that person. And peacemaking that the world knows nothing about can be demonstrated. And it can be a great, actually a joyous, wonderful thing. I was at a church where, out of the blue for me, I wasn't in the know. It was a big church. Um, a, a man was put up on front and said, uh, so-and-so has been uh, in an affair for a year. And they had been working with this guy for almost a year. And thank God he came to repentance. But he was a singer, he was a children's minister, and so it, it needed to be public. He was not excommunicated, but it needed to be public because he was a public figure. And so, and it was actually a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like, you think of this as, as just negative, but taking these steps and being faithful in what God has called us to do can be a beautiful, and it, it spawned a whole men's group on sexual temptation. And man, the stories that came out in that class. It probably averted other problems in the church. So God used it in his providence uh, for some really good stuff in that church. So something about notorious, it's obvious, it's, it's public, there's no question, and persistent, refusal to repent. All right, and just a little bit on the types of discipline. I'm not an elder. I don't, I've never read the book of church order. Don't plan to. And um, I'm sure it goes into more detail. Uh, the officers of the church are to proceed according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. So kind of like with your children, right? You need to fashion your discipline for that child. I had a child who needed so many spankings, I would have definitely been thrown in jail. I'm just obstinate. Uh, I had another one that if I had, uh, just talking to her harshly, she broke down. Like, for me to lay hand on her at that point would be so inappropriate. Uh, 
And for me to give up on the first child, which was my first child, um, would not have been effective, right? So you, just like you as a parent do that, or you as a boss, you know, meet out discipline as necessary at work. Same thing here. You know, you've got to get to know the person, their heart, um, try to discern as best you can, you know, how repentant they are or not repentant, or they're just playing games, um, the severity of the crime. So that takes great wisdom. We don't have a, a, a nice scripted playbook. And that's why when you elect elders, it's very important. You, 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 you seek out men of great wisdom and great faithfulness and, and who are patient and who would discern specific cases. Now realize everything in this paragraph presumes what we already talked about from Matthew 18, right? It's when we get to this level of type of discipline, we're talking about church discipline. Proceed by admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season, and by excommunication from the church. So there could be just a rebuke. I don't know about our church. I've seen rebukes that are public, and I'm sure there are rebukes and dealings that the elders deal with regularly that are private and never get to our, our ears. And that's appropriate, right? We wouldn't actually want that, because that, can you imagine if your sin, the, the quicker your sin becomes public, how much harder that is to repent now? Like you just want to run at that point, right? So that's great wisdom. We're saying it's very careful. Elders, we trust you. Don't let this thing get out of control and spread like wildfire in the congregation. And yet, you don't want to just reveal that so fast and act so fast that you've just ruined this sinner who might have repented. <laughs> if, if you're not feeling a weight on those kind of responsibilities, um, you're not getting it. Fence from the table. We, we usually hear some kind of a fencing at the table, which means a warning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and other places don't come to this table lightly. Um, and then ultimately, of course, we get to excommunication of removal from the body, being stricken from the rolls. Okay, so let's go to example text. And obviously you'll see a lot of overlap because hopefully the people who wrote the confession wrote this, read this text before they wrote it, right? First Corinthians 15. It is actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, probably his stepmother. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Right? There's, there's a removal. There, there's an identifiable group from which you can be removed, right? So we're, we're at that last highest stage of excommunication. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, there's some kind of a power, there's some kind of authority given to the church. Whatever you conceive as the, the local church government, fine. There's lots of other verses we'd have to look at to build that case. But somehow that body is given power of Jesus to make declarative statements, right? We can't, just, we can't just always say, well, we don't know. Only God knows hearts. You're delivered so, this man to Satan. So we have now a little bit of a descriptor of what's happening. When we are removing someone from the body, from, the, from this body of believers, we are saying that they are being delivered to Satan. Right? We, we, are, we are declaring and being external and public that this person does not, we don't believe that this person belong, is a child of God. We believe this person is actually outside of that universal church, as best as we can tell. They're of their father, the devil. And that sounds harsh, but look, why are we doing that? So that his spirit may be saved. 
There's something about excommunication and other church discipline. There's something about just the one-on-one confronting a brother in a sin that is after their spirit. It's, it's saving their soul. We don't care about their flesh. We don't care about their feelings. I mean, we do, but ultimately, right, no matter how harsh this might feel and how hard the decision might be to be made, we care about their spirit. We care about where they're going to be in a thousand years, not next week, right? That's our goal. That's our heart. And that ought to come through, just like the way you discipline your children. You're going to be harsh. They don't want to be spanked. They don't want whatever consequences, taking away the car. They don't want that. But they ought to see that. Even then, they ought to believe that, that you want the best for them, right? That in the whole context of a relationship, they understand that. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or yeast, right? It spreads. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Act like who you are. This is what the confession says about acting like a holy people. You're a holy people. You need to act like it. You are unleavened, so cleanse out the old leaven. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. See, that bears the name of brother. There's something objective about church membership. Yes, I don't know your heart but you bear the name of brother. By your confession, you bear the name of brother. Don't associate if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so we're gonna talk about, tease that out in the Q&A. What does that mean to not associate, not to eat with? But there's clearly a change in your relationship, right? When someone is removed from the body, your relationship objectively has changed the way you approach that person is going to be different now. For what have I do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church for me to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, all this Old Testament language of, of purging, of cleansing, keeping holy the body. Our focus actually ought to be a lot more in the church than outside of it. We like to rail against the culture, right? Rail against our neighbors. Leave that to God. <laughs> Evangelize that lost soul and leave the judgment to God. We have to be much more concerned about judging within the church, this says. All right, so just a summary there. Local church is an identifiable entity. We ought to know. We, you ought to be able to know who's, you. If, if I'm saying you have responsibility for your, the person who, um, what's the word, declares to be a brother? Who bears the name of brother? How do I know who bears the name of brother? How do I know who's in Spring Meadows? Right? I think that's important. The local church is given authority, as we've seen. The power is given to them. The holy church is a priority to God. We might, and this is hard because we're so gospel-centered and grace-centered, but we, we, even if we don't know how to do it precisely, we ought to know that by saying gospel-centered and grace-centered does not negate uh, a desire for a holy church. It doesn't. It's, it's not gospel-centered to, to avoid discipline, to avoid holiness. That's the wrong view of the gospel. It's the wrong view of grace. We make judgments based on visible fruit, right? That's all we can do. That was in verse 11 and 12 there. Um, I can see this person as being sexually immoral or greedy, as an idolater. I, I can see it. It's, it's there. I'm not, I'm not having to discern this from your private discussions, right? It's like I'm going into your conscience and saying, 
Oh, I see those evil thoughts you're having. No, this is someone who's acting in a certain way, right? That's, that's how I judge. Uh, remove blessings now to save the soul. So it's, it can feel harsh. We're, we're, gonna re- we're gonna remove some benefits, some happy feelings now, but it's for a much greater good, which we, sh- we all know in other areas of our life. First John 5 says, there is sin that leads to death. We need to be aware of that. There's sin that leads to death. And we need to take that very seriously. Sixth and last, excommunication is reserved for specific sins. So you can see here, it's clear and uncontroversial. He says, not even the pagans would be doing this. I mean, this is so clear and so obvious. What a rebuke to a, a congregation who claims the name of Jesus that they're letting a sin go that not even their pagan neighbors would allow. Like, it's so obvious and disgusting. Like, how arrogant, he calls them, just an arrogant group, to s- somehow twist a gospel of grace into something that even the world would know is wrong. It doesn't make any sense. You're looking foolish. You're, you're, you're tearing down the name of God uh, to the pagans. We assume then that it's an unrepentant sin, right? We, and again, that goes into wisdom. How much time do you give for repentance? There's no black and white answer on that. There needs to be some time, right? You're calling them to repentance. And then I have a question on how public it needs to be. Because it needs to be known. I can't go to your conscience, but we're going to tease that out a bit. All right, so here are some of my questions. And we don't have to answer them all or go in order, but we have a good 15 minutes here. Because I think a, a hard thing with the discipline are the, you know, the details. The devil's in the details. Like, what does this really mean? So one question I have is how public should discipline be? And please, those who are elders who have had experience or in other churches, uh, come on with experiences. I'll need a microphone. Um, unless your comment is less than five seconds, I want you on the mic. If it's less than five, I'll repeat it. So, okay, we have different steps. How, how public should discipline be? Should, obviously, by the time it gets to communication, it's public, but what about anything leading up to that? Should there be such a thing as a public rebuke? This uh, goes back quite a ways into Spring Meadows history, but we had discovered at one point that we had a member who believed in what's known as hyperpreterism, that Jesus has already risen from the death and that there, there is no future hope. And of course that caused a great time of study for the elders and, and as you can probably guess, that's outside, so far outside the norms of orthodoxy that we disciplined this person. But it was were, not- were they, were they in a position of teaching or leadership? No. Okay, so number they three. Were, they were on the worship team, and so part of the discipline was we suspended them from the, the Lord's Supper and took them off the worship team, but it was all done in love. And, and by the sure. way, we still love this person, and I'm sure this, this person stayed in the congregation. Well, was it, was it, I mean, it would have been public not, not to see. public. What was never stated, like it was this person, never okay. announced publicly. Just happened, right? Now people might ask, and at the time we just no comment, right? You know, go talk to this person, and um, but there, you know, oftentimes it just depends on if you sense a person is struggling. We we had another case where we <laughs> we had a guy who was so blatantly unrepentant and persistent and obvious and we had give him a million chances 
I mean, I can remember going to the grocery store and buying groceries for him and his family because he was blowing it all on drugs and leaving his wife and family for three yeah. or four days. And, and we did finally have to draw the line. We just told this guy. And, and that was, as you say, uh, a public um, excommunication. It was excommunication. Yes. Or disfellowship. So, so some, sometimes you're in, as you're, I really like the way you put that, Keith. Do we need di uh, discipleship or evangelism? And that really is, if, if someone needs discipleship, you know, people may have totally unorthodox beliefs just because they've, maybe a church they went to, right. you know, allows Yeah, are they really gay. refusing God's word or have they never been taught it? Yeah. Right? I mean, That's what you have to discern. Exactly. Are they seeing something clearly and saying no? Like, I, somebody, a friend recently talked to someone else that said, okay, you have this, these concerns with these doctrines. Let me ask you this. If I could show you unequivocally that the Bible teaches this, would you believe it? And their answer was no. That's a warning sign, right? It's not just a disagreement over how we interpret the text. You're telling me that your authority trumps God's authority. Right? So those are the kind of questions you start to discern. And you kind of jump to number three there. So Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 don't deal with false doctrine. They deal with, right, an offense in Matthew 18 or this immoral behavior. So that was my question. So clearly Spring Meadows would say yes to number three. We would apply this to not just some licentious behavior, but in actually doctrine. And there would be some churches that might be concerned about doctrine if they're in a position of teaching and, quote, influence, and others who would say not. And we clearly care either way. Would you have made the same decision you think if that person wasn't on the worship team? Like just... Oh, definitely. I okay. mean... You really have to study hyperpreterism and see how far outside the bounds of orthodox... It is... It is heretical. Got it. Okay, so someone who is harboring heresy is obviously needs help. And it, it, yeah, they my, need help to see who. Like they've had to study to get to that position. That's not like some natural thing you'd say. No. Yeah, they, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can, I can see. I, I feel the weight of not believing in hell. I can understand that, right? I don't like that. Um, but that's different than maybe going to the weight of having to study to get to heresy. Yeah. I think Dave has something. Yeah, so, so talking about you know, spreading like wildfire, uh, the whole um, uh, new perspectives on Paul or uh, federal vision, um, issues that uh, reared their ugly heads in uh, the, the PCA you know, 10, 15 years ago now, um, you know, d calling those uh, folks out early and um, and you know, sort of holding them to account and and uh, rightly dividing uh, the, the the truth uh, from what are you know uh, heretical lies uh, is would would really have saved a, a lot of churches. The the church that it, uh, that I previously was in let it go far too long, um, and uh, you know, sort of opened the the debate for far too long, and it led to. Um, I mean, the, one of the, the sadder things that I've ever seen, which was a, a, a church devoid of teenagers, because all of those, all of the young families sort of had that federal vision mindset 
um, and took the kids who would have been in teenagers by the time I got to the church out, uh, you know, years years previous. Um, so, uh, you know, in other words, yeah, it it, it you know, so, like stopping that stuff early and because uh, otherwise, like it, it'll spread like wildfire through the congregation. And I don't want, we don't want to dwell. I'm sure we've lost some people on a new perspective of Paul and federal vision, and that's okay. False doctrine. Um, what about going back to the question, you had somebody struggling with drugs. Now, is part of the calculus you think, or anybody can answer this, um, what if this person is just chemically dependent, but you can tell it wants to fight it? Are we going to excommunicate them because they haven't stopped? We've given them a year, and they're still on drugs. And that's a very good question question, Keith, and when it just becomes so obvious to everybody in the congregation, where it gets to the point where there's this grumbling, what are the elders doing about this? What are they doing? What's going on? And, and you, obviously, as you stated, you want to agonize over church discipline, but when it gets to the point where you see a family in trouble, and just, just the the total dis, and the hard thing was this guy would come to the session, and he would cry crocodile tears, and we go, boy, that looks like true repentance. And then the next week, you know, he was gone for four or five days. His wife was calls. He's out spending all their money on drugs and whatever, and we just go, oh man. I mean, th this is the kind of nastiness. Being an yeah. elder is no fun. When you yeah, have yeah. To and I, and I don't think you could say in this forum for all cases. This is the answer, right? I think you're really looking for repentance. And then there's the other side that, well, maybe this act of discipline, whatever specific type, might, might do something for this person. Yeah. That might Re trigger them. Like, they have a status at church that maybe needs to be removed. I don't know. Excommunication what is, is best for this person and this family? Right. The sinner. Right. One question on number one you might tease out a little more is, now, we're very clear and public when people enter our church, right? They're they're going to be a communicant member. We're going to receive their membership, whatever. If they've not been baptized, they're baptized. So the entrance in is very clear. No one becomes a member without coming up front at some point. What about when they leave? You look around and they haven't seen somebody for a while. Maybe they've moved. Maybe they've just gone to another church and it's in good graces. Maybe they've gone to another church with unresolved issues. They just left. We, we agree. I'm talking about members now, right? Not if you decide to come and never become a member, which is also a problem we can talk about later. But before, because of these reasons, right? We can't be a help to you if you're not part of the body. Um, what if they're in sin? I mean, I, I get a little uncomfortable not knowing why somebody is maybe not on our... I, to be honest, I don't even know where we could go and read a list of the Spring Meadows roles because our directory is not accurate. It includes family members who are not members. So I'll let somebody answer that. Oh, Terry had something else before that? Sorry. What, what's sort of related, um, when uh, Mark and I started in a big mega church in Tucson, one of our first weeks, we got to see a public, we didn't, we learned the story, we got to see the restoration process. So this church was about a couple thousand, and they had a, a restoration ceremony after this young man, who happened to be the pastor's son, um, and was on drugs and dealing and the pastor's family found out brought him to the el brought their own son to the elders 
he was unrepentant. And so as a church, they actually turned him into Metro. Um, and he was in prison. He had been in prison for a few years. But what came out of that is, so they treated him as an unbeliever, but evangelized. And it started a whole prison ministry. Like this church was big in prison ministry. That's awesome. He came to Christ in prison, literally, uh, through this Bible study. And um, so what we got to see is when he came out of prison, the whole, because it, it had been public, they restored him publicly. And he, beautiful. he became, after two or three years, but it changed the, not just the church, but the community. And that was the first time I think we had ever seen this work properly. Yeah, I mean, just think about God works in mysterious ways, right? He, to, to get to Paul the Apostle, he used him to kill the church. Like, the, David's, he murdered and sexual immorality. You could consider rape, in a sense, from his authority. Like, and yet he's the man. So don't put it beyond God that God's going to use a discipline process to do great things. So d don't think you're doing the nice and the good and gracious thing um, by refusing discipline. And I know that's hard. Mike, over there, please. Just have a few minutes David here. and I were, were, um, were part of a church for, for a while that uh, some of the, the, the pastor and some of the people in the congregation um, got veered off into preterism. And David and I tried to go to the pastor and explain to him this was an abominable um, doctrine. He didn't want to listen, but we didn't give up, and we stayed a while until, um, until the Lord called all of his people that he wanted away from that doctrine. It split the church literally more than half. So false doctrine is not really something that, that we want to play with. It, it is like a wildfire. Mm. And so this man that was a pastor lost a lot of his people, lost a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually the Lord restored him. So that was the, that was the good news. Can we pass it back to Leah? And I don't know what Leah's going to say, but I'm going to put her on the spot because we've talked about this. So one of my questions is, what does it mean, number two, to even not eat with such a one? I mean, I thought we just said we now want to evangelize this person. What am I doing? Cutting off all communication? What does Paul mean here? What if the person who's excommunicated from your church is in your family? Do you have Thanksgiving dinner with them? Like, what do you do? So Leah, you can answer that and whatever you had to say. <laughs> what if I wanted to talk about something else? You can do mine and then yours. <laughs> Tell, tell us a little bit, maybe, you don't have to implicate yourself if you don't want. What, no, your, your last church had yeah. a position on this. So <laughs> the story he's talking about is before we got to this church, there was somebody who, um, they had a daughter who came to them, said she was pregnant, that, but was a communing member. And she refused to marry him, refused to, you know, abandon that that sin, whatever that should look like. Just She wanted to continue dating this boy, but not marrying him, having the baby. And so she was excommunicated, and the, her parents believed that the most loving thing to do 
for her, and again, the goal of restoration was to have nothing to do with her. And they did, and for years they didn't see that grandchild, they had no relationship, and she did eventually come to restoration. She repented, she, uh, that relationship didn't work out. She later married a Christian man and, and is a good member, this is 20 years later, you know, and so she would say that her parents were right and that that was the most loving thing and that's the right thing. But the question came up with Keith and I, and then we've talked in the, our community group, is was that right or is that always right or is it sometimes right? Yeah, I, I, my, I, I would say my gut reaction is no. But whatever, whatever you think on that, have a biblical reason, right? Get to a biblical point. I mean, we're not going to tease out the answer if there is one. But it, it was a good discussion, I thought. I, I, man, I would hate to be challenged with such a thing. All right, what was your real question? Well, the, well it, was, it was kind of... A, a, uh, still on number two, which is where this, um, that point was as well. Um, but it was the, uh, the other example that we'd also talked about. It was a, a small church. In, uh, it was actually uh, on the mission field, but a lot of young believers, new believers. I mean, it was college ministry, so most of these kids are in college, and there was somebody who his father was a very much so a false prophet, and he, being also a college kid, friends with all of these kids, was trying to draw these young believers into a false doctrine. It was very dangerous. And so when the elders got word of this, 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 this young man was not a member of the church, but when he got word of what was going on, he tried to speak to him and his father and said, hey, this is why this doctrine is is." Im- is wrong it's heresy you know you need to not say this or come around and they both were very like you can't stop me i'm going to continue to preach this we're going to have these bible studies so there was a church meeting saying you guys need to have nothing to do with this and the elders did that in in a desire to protect the flock because they saw okay this is dangerous doctrine they're young believers they're not mature enough so it was a very fatherly parental thing in that but then the question became is like, do the elders, and this was the question, or the conversation Keith and I had, is do the elders have the right or should they tell you have nothing to do with this person? And, and I think based on, on this scripture here, the, the answer is yes. Like if you're more mature and you feel like you can handle to continue to witness to that or, or to continue to call them out maybe, but. But ultimately, obviously, if, if you're gonna live under authority, um, I mean, it, I guess it's a conscience issue. If you think you're disobeying God by obeying the elder, then obviously you obey a God. But, you know, if at some point, even if you disagree with the elder, I would, there's obviously got to be an element where you submit to the eldership and you're trusting that God is using that eldership to make these practical decisions. And they're hard. No more time. Um, let me just say, number five, we, we have to be careful. I don't want us to get in the habit of looking for an offenses, right? Um, I'm going to start this stage of Matthew 18. No. And this isn't an offense like hurt my feelings or they didn't call on me or um, treated me in a certain way. It's not like that. We're talking about obvious, notorious sins, something that is clearly and blatantly in violation of God's word. No dispute. We're not talking about interpersonal stuff. Sometimes you're just too sensitive. Sometimes you just need to cover everything in love and grace, right? Don't worry about it. Now, you can go to someone, and if that's keeping up all the time, and say, man, I'm, my relationship with you is getting hurt. Can we talk about this? We're not necessarily in the discipline process. You're just restoring a relationship, right? 
and you ought to be able to receive that, number four, that type of approach. So we could take this too far, and that is not my intent. So let's pray. Our Father, this is a big topic. We pray most of all that we, uh, we believe in a holy church. We believe in ourselves being holy individuals and knowing how fall, far short we fall, we, we would lean on your grace. Thank you for Jesus who has paid for every one of our sins. Thank you that we have satisfaction in his sacrifice. Um, and yet let us have a right view of holiness and your word and let's trust you even in uh, something like discipline that doesn't feel right, it maybe doesn't even make sense to us that we trust what you've said. Help us not to neglect um, saving our brother from death. If we, if we see something, let's go to them, but let's go to them in an in a, in a already established relationship, in a community with long-suffering, prayer, accountability. Help us to bear one another's burdens. And we pray that our church as a whole, our elders in particular, would, would hear cases and and um, and rule over them and, and make wise decisions for the sake of the flock. May Spring Meadows be seen as a special, holy, unique people to Las Vegas uh, in both complete overhaul of grace and gospel and love that the world has never seen and also with a desire for peacemaking and for holiness that the world has never seen. So I, I just imagine that there are cases before the session right now. Pray that you would give them a great wisdom and grace as, as they consider such weighty matters. Pray that we as a church, uh, as we come in the next few months to perhaps elect more officers, that, that we would all take this responsibility very seriously. Thank you for a church that has a confession, has a doctrine, doctrinal statement that we can run to and that, would, that does bring us peace. And now be with Tim as he recovers. We pray that Ed uh, would come this morning uh, by your Spirit's power and preach the word to us. Thank you for the music team and all their diligent work every week. Pray that they would lead us well uh, and lift up our Savior. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.